Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. The first time I went to an ATI conference, I was 13. He was 76 years old and we happened to be walking opposite ways in a hallway and he stopped me and that was the very first interaction and he was like instantly drawn to me and was saying how you have a beautiful smile and you have such a bright countenance and I want you to work for my ministry. I was 13. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have uh, Emily Elizabeth Anderson here on the show with me. Can you just introduce yourself really quickly and let people know a little bit about your blog? Because that's how I got connected with you. Of course. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. It is such a pleasure to be on here and and to be able to talk with you. Uh, Yeah. I go now by Emily Elizabeth Anderson. That's my married name. But you may have seen my maiden name, Emily Yeager, in some older news regarding the IFB movement. I was a plaintiff in the Bill Gothard lawsuit, and I was under Jane Doe 3, but then I later came out with my true identity as Emily Yeager. In the last few years since I moved on from my involvement in the lawsuit, I have started a blog, which is uh, the website address is thrivingforwardblog.com. I'm also pretty active on my Thriving Forward Facebook page page as well. And now I just work as an advocate. I work with survivors every day, trying to uh, get the word out there of what are some of the dangerous teachings within the IFB movement, and then just help plug resources that survivors can use as they are on their own journey to freedom. What was your introduction to this world? I definitely want to dive into Gothard specifically because that came a little bit later, but what was your intro to independent Baptist movement? Was it born into it? raised in it? Or was it something your family switched to midway through childhood? Yeah, I was definitely born into it prior to my 
parents having children, they were school teachers at a very conservative, I would say fundamentalist Christian school. And they were teachers there for several years. And then when my mother started to have uh, kids, she ended up being a stay-at-home mom and my dad ended up moving into another line of work. But we were apart from the get-go of highly conservative fundamentalist Baptist churches. And I went to that private school that my parents used to teach at from first through fourth grade. And it wasn't until fifth grade that uh, she decided to homeschool me. And that's when we got involved in the Gothard part in particular. But really, we had been involved in the fundamentalist churches our whole life. Gothard is some something of a more extreme example of the independent Baptist world. There's There are different levels or layers that you can look at. And when you and your family switched into the Gothard curriculum, was it a massive shift or did it feel like it was just a kind of gradual change from being casual IFB to a little bit more serious? I would say it felt pretty natural to me. My parents had gone to Bill Gothard's seminars, like, back when they were teenagers. So I know even prior to our formal involvement in the Advanced Training Institute, which was Bill Gothard's homeschool group. It isn't hard. It's impossible. We want to raise children that are the evangelists, that will be the leaders of the next generation, leaders in godliness. I'm praying for the young men and young women You are the King Josiahs. You are the ones that I believe the Lord is raising up, pure and holy, to do the impossible. I watched my mom walk out of the kitchen, through the dining room, into the living room, and she sat down on the couch, and my mother never walked again. Why would you want to waste your life doing something great for God? when God invites you to do impossible things. Even prior to our involvement in that, I was definitely surrounded with some of his teachings as far as like the umbrella of authority and a lot of the purity culture teachings as well. I also remember going to his seminars, his basic seminar and his advanced seminar and the anger resolution seminar. So I don't really remember a time where I didn't know these teachings. It was just very natural as I grew older that these conversations would happen in my home that surrounded around these teachings. And we believed it wholeheartedly for sure. Relationships, life revolves around them. In a marriage, at the workplace, with the family. And while we want these relationships to be all they should be, we so often cause them to deteriorate through anger, tension, deceit, conflict, and many other destructive problems. So how can we change? We need the Bible. And that's why the Basic Life Principles Seminar was developed. Believing that Scripture contains all the answers we need, this life-changing seminar is designed to help you learn those answers and apply them to the everyday struggles and problems that we all face. 
what were some of the main influences? There may be a lot of people who are listening. I know I didn't hear the name Gothard until I was getting out of the IFB and I started seeing people's stories talking about them. But so for people who are maybe completely foreign, what are some of the core teachings or tenets that, that Gothard's institutes taught? Mm-hmm. His very first seminar was called the basic seminar. And I believe he produced that in the late 1960s, really 1970s. And his basic seminars was surrounded by seven core principles. And so it was just, I'm glad to say, I can't even remember all of them by heart. I think I have healed enough to where I don't fill my mind with that anymore. But it was, it was just what he considered seven basic principles of godly living. And this seminar would like last several days and uh, he would go through each principle one by one. And it was like teaching on modesty, like, like really strict modesty standards for women. He would have a teaching about yielding your rights, which basically just meant have no boundaries whatsoever. (laughs) Yielding all your rights to God. There was a lot of patriarchal teaching for sure. His classic teaching that he's most well known for is called the umbrella of authority. I think there's been a few other names for it over the years. He tries to make it sound a little better each time he renames it. And just this teaching that there's multiple umbrellas. Jesus is the top umbrella directly under that. You have the church or even just Bill Gothard directly under that. You have the father directly under that. You have the mother under that. You have the children. And the idea is that as long as you stay under your assigned umbrella. So for instance, the wife, as long as she stays under the authority and leadership of her husband, she is guaranteed protection from quote fiery darts Mm. from Satan. And it's extremely flawed from the get-go. You look at the graph and you think, doesn't Jesus cover everything? Like, It doesn't even make sense just looking at it from the get-go, but really it was just a patriarchal teaching. So telling women that they didn't have any, uh, when I think of the umbrella of authority, I think the core teaching was toward women. And it was that your husband is your mediator between you and God. You can't go to God directly. And so if you have a idea, concern, a conviction about something. It doesn't matter what God is telling you. You have to go by what your husband says. And so you don't really have any say in your home. And he's going by what the pastor says because the pastor is above him. Right. That too. It was very demeaning for the men as well, because they would go to their church with questions that were none of the church's business. And it's the pastors telling them how to rule, how to make decisions in their home. Ultimately, the the biggest person in the hierarchy was Bill Gothard. And he definitely abused that within his own ministry and how he handled his, the people that worked within his ministry. So with a structure like this, it works. It's what I always say about the, the whole man of God thing. If you have a pastor that has ultimate authority, it's like having a king. You can have a mm-hmm. you can have a generally nice, kind king, and things feel pretty okay. But the system allows for abuse to happen pretty quickly if the gets in, and absolutely it the wrong people, it's abusers, and particularly right. those that are very narcissistic and those that are just craving any kind of power and authority. They use it to exercise inappropriate power over weaker ones. And the lower you are in the umbrella, then the umbrella illustration, then the weaker you are. 
Yeah. It's a magnet for that personality type. And I'm curious for your kind of early experiences in the church setting under this, essentially under this umbrella, did you feel like the people who were in that structure did abuse that? Do you feel like there was people who used that and were negative or was it something where like early on, you didn't really notice like something was off. It just felt, oh, this is fine. Like this, it's pretty peaceful overall. Looking back now, I see that there really wasn't any good. It was all pretty abusive. The thing about being in a cult is it doesn't feel like a cult when you're in it. So certainly at the time, I believed it to be good as gospel. I thought this is what God was teaching. I thought this is what was in the Bible. I thought this this was the best way to for a Christian to live. So I believed in the teaching wholeheartedly. I was very much a rule follower while I was in the system. If scripture is already spoken on it in principle, don't ever ask for another sign. You may get it, but it's not going to be God. How did the curriculum, so so Gothard's curriculum is, is pretty shocking. A lot of it started making the news when the Josh Duggar story broke. So people started looking at what do they teach about consent or what do they teach about like sexual abuse, things like that. Jill and Jessa spoke exclusively to Fox News' Megyn Kelly, as did their parents, Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar. The mom and dad described the day they first learned about their son's issues. Josh came to us on his own and he was crying and he had just turned 14 and he said that he had actually improperly touched some of our daughters. Did he explain why? Was that a question that you asked? He said he was just curious about girls and he had gone in and just basically touched them over their clothes while they were asleep and they didn't even know he had done it. The Duggars say they tried to deal with the crisis as a family, but the molestation reoccurred. In total, four sisters were victimized, as well as the family babysitter. The Duggars say they knew they had to act. That's when we pulled him out of the house and we said, he can't be here. We were devastated and we said, we've got to send him out of the home. He has got to go and uh, seek counsel and get help. Josh was sent for live-in therapy at a Christian-based treatment center. Michelle Duggar wept as she told how she explained his absence to their other kids. And for days and days I was saying, Josh has done some very bad things. And he's, he's very sorry. After Josh finished the therapy, the Duggars say they went to the police. And just the teaching on women in general is pretty shocking when you're looking at it with an outside lens. But I'm curious, like as a young girl in the movement, how did the teaching affect how you viewed yourself as you were growing up within this, within this system? And I know a lot of this is hindsight. Like now, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I viewed right. this, but, but how did it affect how you viewed yourself as a young girl in the movement? Mm. You don't have much autonomy. That's for sure. It was very safe and predictable and familiar because everything was based around guarantees I would say the longer I was within the movement, the more I had to wrestle with the idea that the guarantees I was promised weren't coming true. Mm. But at the time, it felt really secure. I have heard some women within the patriarchal movement joke about how they love 
the idea of being submissive to their husband, taking full authority and leadership because they don't have to do anything. They don't have to take any responsibility for things when things go wrong in the family. It's all them. So I think for women, you can actually fall into a bit of a rut of not taking responsibility for your own actions, if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense because a lot of people, I think, use the church for that. Like a lot of male and female people who stay in these very hyper controlling environments, I think rely, like they just let themselves go to the Mm -hmm. movement and say, where do Mm -hmm. I need to be Saturday at seven? Where do I need to be Mm -hmm. Sunday at eight? Where do I need to be? And it's a very, like you said, it's very safe, very routine. You know where you're supposed to be and you're there and you fulfill your role. And as long as you do that, you get out at least in the moment, it seems like you get through pretty painlessly. Uh, And you're raised in a bubble and there is a lot of feeling of safety in that bubble. I remember when going to the ATI conferences every year, they were my highlight of the year. And I loved them because it was the only time of year where everyone that I was surrounded by was just like me and looked just like me and talked like me and acted like me. And there was this, it just felt so, so safe. So in addition to what I said a moment ago, I would say a lot of what I experienced as a teenager was feeling really terrified anytime that I was exposed to the world, as they would call it. And just feeling so very out of place. When I would go shopping, I'd be like out and about, even just at the grocery store. I knew I was different than everybody else in that store. Part of that was a feeling of like superiority that only I am like a real Christian and I am the only one that knows all the answers. But there was also a lot of fear in that too, of I don't want to be tainted. I don't want to be tainted by the world and all of the things that they're doing. I would say one thing that was really difficult to deal with as a teenager was the modesty teachings in particular, because I felt constant shame, constant shame over my own body and constantly worried that I was defrauding the men around me as they called it and freaking out when some guy comes up, another teenager boy walks up to me after church service and is engaging in like the lightest small talk you can. How's it going? It's really cold this week, isn't it? And like internally freaking out thinking, oh my goodness, is he thinking that, or like, is, is he lusting? Is he lusting after my body? Is, are my clothes okay? Like, why is he coming up to me? Is he interested? Is there maybe some romantic interest? Is he wanting to court me? Like this constant monologue that's going on in my brain that was very crippling. For sure. When it related to my relationship with those around me, just always being afraid that I was like causing, causing all the huge consequences that Bill Gothard promised when you didn't follow his system correctly. Yeah. It's the irony of kind of the bubble is that you're so sheltered and it's supposed to be so protective, but it makes you very fragile where everything feels like this huge trespass. And I think about that, like I did some really dumb stuff and like things I, I had a friend, I had a friend who texted me and, and thank goodness for friends that remind you of very dumb things that you did in high school. But, but like, I look at it overall and I'm like, I was a really good kid overall. And 
maybe that's, maybe I'm biased, but I, I look at it and I'm just like, overall, like I wasn't doing any of the after school special things that you'd expect someone to be, you know, slipping off and doing. Like I was, sure. I was in my spot. I was doing what I needed to do. And, but then I look at that and then I kind of juxtapose that with how much shame I felt constantly because I felt like I wasn't performing well enough. I wasn't doing enough ministries. I wasn't dressing well enough on yep. certain days. Like it was so crazy that by for all intents and purposes, I was like a gold star, like you're doing mm-hmm. a great job kid to the world perspective. But then within the church, it was constantly like, why aren't you doing choir? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this too? Why aren't you adding this up? Why are you not going to soul winning things this week instead of just the one? Right. The- constant guilt tripping that you're right. not doing enough. And constant moving of those goalposts, like what's acceptable today. I I was listening to Stephen Hassan who wrote Combating Cult Mind Control, and he talks about the idea that there's not this upfront statement of what's expected when you join. It continually changes and progresses and gets stronger and stronger as you get involved. And it's true. The churches start with these visitor days where we say, Hey, come as you are. We want to have you here. And then the minute you join in, it starts ratcheting up and ratcheting up. And for some churches, it doesn't stop ratcheting up. Like it just keeps going. And it, you just find yourself like a few years later, 20 years later, in my case going like, how did I get to this? Like, why is there so much shame? And I've been climbing this whole time and and the mountain, you know, peak is getting further and further away. Mm -hmm. A really disappointing and depressing place to be. Definitely. It's really sad. I look back into some of my old journals and the ATI conference that we always went to is during the summer, but I always wrote up what were like new year's resolutions, what I'm going to do for the next year. And it's really sad to go back and see the things that I wrote And it was all about don't make friends, make disciples and commit to, you know, two hours a day in God's word or memorize the book of Psalms, Proverbs, and Romans. And it was just like (laughs) really extreme things. And it's, it's a whole nother language, first of all, to look at those things and realize nobody actually really talks this way (laughs) in real life. But yeah, there was just so much emphasis on being better, doing more. And it was all to gain the approval of God. You didn't think if you were doing, you constantly, you were in the shame dance thinking God must not be up, you know, must must not be happy with me right now because I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing as much as this other, there's constant comparing within the movement for sure. You go to these conferences. I go to these young ladies conferences and I see these um, women that are talking to in there in their mid thirties are still unmarried, but they're totally devoted to ministry. And it's, oh my goodness, she's so perfect compared to that. God must think I'm a hot mess. (laughs) Don't question in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. And so when those days are hard and dark and dreary and you feel overwhelmed, which is often about every day, sometimes I think some of us moms have communicated with one another and you just realize this is impossible. It is. You can't live the Christian life in your own strength. And 2 Corinthians 12, 9, is our verse for that. And he said unto me that my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength 
His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So then we say back to him, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's, I want to step back just a few, and I want to dive a little bit deeper in your story, but you mentioned a, a word that whenever it gets mentioned on the show, some people like flip their lids and then other people go, yes, like, why don't you say this more? So you said the word cult and, yeah. and that word, every time it's used generates a ton of baggage. I've used it myself. I've mentioned it. And I think, I think what I've, where I've landed in the show, cause I, I started with just saying like always independent Baptist cult, independent Baptist mm-hmm. cult to, mm-hmm. okay. The movement's a cult. I, I, I think where I'm at now is I think the movement at large and the way it's intended to run based on who started it is very much a cult. I think that there are the exceptions are, a handful of churches that are not cultish, which seem mm-hmm. to be exception, not the rule. And so I'm very comfortable saying independent fundamental Baptist cult. I, I think that term applies in a broad way. I know you've referred to the Gothard sect, which I think yeah. is pretty indisputably <laughs> a cult. Definitely. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if you could just break down, because when people hear the word cult, they have a lot of different connotations. I'm curious, like, in your thought process and your research and tons of writing on it, what are some of the tenets that make you go, okay, this isn't just a religious kind of group, like this leans into more of a cult? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of telltale signs for sure. Speaking specifically toward the Gothard movement, you did have one person in authority that was receiving divine revelations from God. Maybe he didn't call that call it that maybe he didn't call himself a prophet but his followers called him the modern day apostle paul that's how we all refer to him as and he would talk about how he would go off every january and fast for 30 days and stay in this little cabin for 30 straight days and that's where he would get all of his ideas for the following year and i'm not saying that God can't speak to you directly, but the way that he presented it was definitely, he was receiving these divine revelations and things that had never been shared before, never been spoken before, new meaning to scripture. IBLP's slogan is a new approach to life. (laughs) So it was all like new and exclusive and just within the Gothard movement. And not only all that, but it was the only way. This was the only way to live. This was the only right answers. This was the only correct interpretation of scripture. So that's very classic sign of a cult. We uh, have some major problems in the world today and they're getting worse. And we have the answers in given to us by the Lord. And we're getting really thrilling results by taking the directions in scripture and applying them to the problems of our day. There was some money aspect to it, for sure. There were rules as far as getting into ATI. You had to sign this very legal, very lengthy document that stated all the things that your family wasn't going to do. You're not, the men aren't going to have beards. You're not going to have TV in your house. All these things. So there were very strict rules to stay within ATI. And you did have to pay a lot of money. There was a lot of materials that you had to buy. You had to buy all these wisdom booklets and just books upon books to learn. And it reminds me of stories I've heard of Scientology, Mm -hmm. where it just, 
completely consumes your finances because you're required to just buy all this material. So that was a part of it as well that I think really classifies ATI as a cult. And then on the broader picture, we were, like we discussed before, you're very much sheltered. You're put into a bubble. You are encouraged to shun anyone outside of the bubble, including family. So you have a teenager that decides to move out and make some different decisions from their parents. You're taught to shun them. Maybe we didn't call it shunning an ATI, but it was 100% the teaching was, was shunning for sure. And just this idea that even just you're not supposed to have friends, you're not supposed to socialize or have any kind of relationship with anybody that doesn't agree 100% with what ATI teaches. Right. You aren't even supposed to show the ATI materials to anybody outside or even like the base. Yes, there was a rule about that. You were not supposed to show the materials to anybody outside of it. They had to go to, they had to buy their own workbook and go to the basic seminar themselves. So they could like be fully indoctrinated in person. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of exclusivity in that we're just, we're so sheltered so much in a bubble and the major consequences that would happen if you dare step a toe out of line. There was no, everything was black and white. Everything had a yes or no answer. And this is what is biblical. And this is what isn't. There was no gray areas at all. So there was no freedom within families to decide what was best for them. It was only one way in his book author's way. And this is the way that's taught in wisdom booklets. There's nothing else. If you're doing anything else, you are sinning. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. So I, I have um, Sarah Evanson coming on the show soon from Nexium. When she has done up, she's just launched a podcast and was I was listening to it yesterday. And she was talking with Stephen Hassan, who's I, his book was just phenomenal, like explaining when it becomes when the cult steps out of line. Like when does something become harmful with its influence versus being totally normal? Because everything influences us in some way. Like everything he did to talk about how our our phones and like our mobile devices and like the Apple brand, like we have loyalty to different brands and there's things that aren't necessarily harmful to us. But then there is a level at which it steps over. And one of the things that he said in that episode was about how um, an organization that is a not a control organization has no problem displaying what it's about to anybody who asks. Before you invest time, money, resources, he said one of the first warning signs is when they say, I don't want to tell you, you have to experience it for yourself. And it mm-hmm. sounds exactly like what you said. That sounds like Scientology. That sounds mm-hmm. like. Nexium with their training seminars. It is this idea that people, you're not going to understand this. If I explain it, like you have to hear my pastor explain it, or you're not going to understand it. If we say it, like you need to go to this conference with us. And it's, if it's such a obvious truth thing, which is what they would claim it to be like, you should be able to display that. And you should be able to make a decision as an outsider, whether it's going to be harmful or helpful in that split second, you shouldn't have to go through this course and get programmed to think a certain way. And right. so it's really interesting. Like the rule about not showing to anybody stands out to me because I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, that's pretty shocking. And I know now there's tons of people copying and, and sharing some of these, these documents. <laughs> right. It is. It's, it's the internet really changed true. everything. It's exposed it's, with the Recovering Grace website where re- they were really the first to hone in specifically on Gothard. And I don't think without them and without 
social media, I just don't think there would be this amount of evil exposed like we're seeing right now. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like the, like I said, the Duggar thing brought it into the, I knew about it before then, but the Duggar story really, like when you see some of the curriculum about how women should react if they're assaulted, like yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's just disgusting stuff. Like there, I, I just saw an article and it, or actually I think it was what you had shared. I think it's actually mm-hmm. how I got connected with you is, you know, what God is teaching children who are abused. Yes. You know? and, yeah. What, why would God allow a, four or five little boy, five-year-old little boy to be molested by a teenage neighbor. I actually pull it up because it's, you can go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I'm going to pull it up because I forgot that this is how I got connected with you is that you had, because I had read some of their stuff when the Josh Duggar story broke, I had read some of the articles, but this was on a different level than anything I had read from them whatsoever. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying when you read it. And the thing is, I know that I used to believe that stuff wholeheartedly. When you're in the system, it sounds normal. It sounds really great too, because it's, oh, there's all these wonderful godly explanations and benefits to sexual assault. And so I look at that now and I'm like, oh my word, how how in the world did we allow this to go on? But but this is where people don't understand unless they've been inside of any kind of cultish group or they've been inside a, even a, on a lesser end of the spectrum, hyper fundamentalist kind of group where you stay within that movement, which is basically the definition of a cult. You've got the behavior control, informational control, you've got all of thought control, emotional control, like all of those things speak to it being a cult environment. But if you've never been within it, like it, it sounds crazy when you say, Oh, someone believed that, or someone said that, Mm -hmm. or someone heard that and didn't say anything. Like I would have walked out of the service and it's, you say that, but when you're in it, it is, it's slowly turning up that temperature, slowly moving the goalpost. And it's not till you get out that you see how far you got pulled into something like that's when you go, Oh, this was serious. This was a really serious situation I was involved in. And again, it's that slow it's that very slow build to get you to accept it and even get to the point where you're teaching it. Like when you get to the point where you're comfortable telling other people this kind of stuff, it's, you don't really hide it. Like you just start sharing it because that's what you've been taught and and taught to believe. But yeah, this was just to give people who don't know anything about Gothard, like this gives you a glimpse of some of the curriculum. And if you're watching, you can see it, but if you're listening, the, the, Curriculum was, why did God let a four-year-old boy be molested by a 15-year-old neighbor? Now I'll just read the bullet points, and then I'll put a link in the show notes where you can where you can see this on, on the blog. But the points are to teach him responsibility to cry out to God for help, which I actually just got in a, a little bit of an argument with someone over this conversation recently, to motivate him to dedicate his body to God, to give him a moral vaccination against future temptations, to transform aroused desires to spiritual power to motivate him to write God's law in his heart. And again, this is a four-year-old boy in this example. The next is to concentrate on God's hatred of sodomy, to conform the, to confirm the importance of avoiding evil companions, to learn how to discern evil companions, to work out justice and mercy, to help parents understand the basis of genius, to see the need for a daily schedule for the best use of time and to remind the father to pray a daily hedge of protection. Like, that's crazy. That's something you read. And again, you can't imagine 
on the outside being like, oh, this makes sense. But it, it, it like the fact that someone like Goddard, and we're going to get into this a little bit, but the fact that someone like Goddard is just straight up printing out curriculum saying, hey, here's the good things that could happen from a four-year-old being assaulted by a 15-year-old teenage boy. Like you can't show your cards any more than that. You can't be any more clear about what you're really about. Mm-hmm. And, but when you do it, again, all this curriculum, all of these seminars, the umbrella structure, all of that, you're grooming people to increasingly set more and more. And it's just startling. I, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's just, it's shocking reading through that. And that was what kind of made me stop and go, okay, it gets, this is just a different level. This goes into that weird when we look at like a scop or like a Jack Hiles, like it goes into that different territory. That's like, how is this not only a, a leader in the movement, but this is like someone that like a majority are influenced by. It's not a fringe, yeah. weird, crazy Sunday school teacher. Like this is someone who gets listed off alongside some of the the heroes of the IFB faith. Um, right. Two and a half million people have gone to his seminar. And I'm not saying he taught that in his seminar, but his seminar was the gateway into right. those more extreme teachings. And yeah, the seminar is pretty messed up too, but <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, the seminar by itself my, is it's crazy. pretty scary. Yeah. And I put myself back into the shoes of a teenager myself. And I remember those teachings directly from Bill. I remember those teachings live. I remember the teaching about sexual assault and about rape and as I'll explain a bit more some later, I was a survivor of sexual assault. I was dealing with sexual abuse from my father and I have some allegations against Bill. And I remember being personally counseled by Bill. And there's another very common handout that's gone viral on the internet before, but it's about is centered around a female victim of rape and what are some of the benefits mm-hmm. of that? And I remember going through that material with Bill relating to the abuse I was experiencing with my dad and him explaining how we have these three different parts. You have your body, but then you also have your mind and then you have your spirit and your dad, he abused just one part when he didn't use abuse. I won't even say that he would never use the word abuse, whatever <laughs> he he did whatever to just your body. And your the thing is, if you dedicate your body to God, then he didn't commit this sexual act against your body. He committed it against God's body. And so it shouldn't upset you anymore. It shouldn't bother you anymore. Your body doesn't even belong to you anymore. You're going to give it to God as if that was this great thing. And this idea that sexual abuse against your body and he hinted at this in, in what you just read a minute ago, it is a gateway to spiritual power and strength being what he called mighty in spirit. So you're actually supposed to be thankful. Like I'm thankful my physical body was assaulted because this is going to allow me to be mightier in spirit, which is like this wonderful, good thing. It was as a hurting teenage girl that is suffering under abuse within her home, she's looking for answers. She's looking for relief. She's looking for something, anything that's going to take away some of the sting of the abuse she's experiencing. And that explanation sounds pretty good in the right context and 
it sounded great to me as a teenager. Yeah. You allude a lot on your blog to like mental, physical, and sexual abuse within that realm. And I know you mentioned obviously within the home, but also you mentioned some allegations like against Gothard. I don't know how much you can go into that or care to go into that, but was this something that was happening from early, early childhood on, or did this kind of begin like at the same time as the Gothard kind of curriculum started coming into the house? My family was structured a little bit different than the average ATI family. First of all, due to fertility issues, my mother didn't have a bunch of children. So I only had one sibling and she was out of the house by the time we were involved in Gothard. So she's never been a part of that. So it, it was really just me and my mom and my father, while we went to these patriarchal churches, he was a workaholic and very narcissistic, very emotionally abusive, but he was not, I wouldn't say like a strong patriarchal figure, if that makes sense. He really preferred to just not be involved rather than be this domineering, I'm the head of the family kind of type thing. So he never led us in Bible study. I don't remember ever reading the Bible as a family, other than my my mother and I would read it together. He was not involved in Gothic curriculum whatsoever. Didn't do the wisdom book list with us. Didn't go to the conferences with us. So it was really just my mother and I. And all that to say, I don't believe that my father's abuse was like directly tied to Gothard, if that makes sense. Cause he just wasn't really involved right. with it. But when we started homeschooling, there was a major shift in my family where my father went through like a midlife crisis and he had addictions to pornography. He had hired prostitutes prior to that, but it wasn't really until I was about 11 years old that his sexual abuse turned toward me. And it was hard to realize it was sexual abuse because I was never raped, but it was definitely many other kinds of sexual abuse for sure. And lots of emotional abuse. And I call it physical abuse because Though I was hardly ever hit by him, I can only come up with two times that he struck me. It was most definitely physical abuse because a huge part of my story is that very soon after his sexual abuse started and the emotional abuse really ramped up was when I developed Crohn's disease, uh, autoimmune disease of the digestive system. And it completely turned my life around. I have the worst case of Crohn's any doctor has ever seen. And I came close to death many times as a teenager. I barely hung on to life in and out of hospitals constantly. And I know that my body developed this autoimmune disease because as this helpless 10 year old is experiencing all this abuse, I didn't know how to, didn't know how to cope. And my body just was naturally having a stress response to explain that on my blog. I have one main blog post that I, that a lot of people have referred to where I believe that emotional abuse is a form of physical abuse Mm -hmm. and that over time it will wreak havoc on your body and in many different ways. That's a 
Yeah, I'll definitely link out to that as well. But yeah, that's one of the things that was surprised me about the book, When the Body Keeps the Score, when it yeah. talks about how, which for anybody listening who heard that and is, what does that mean? Like that, I can't recommend a better resource to understand how trauma affects you physically than yeah. that book. It's absolutely phenomenal and really lays out clearly how those two things go hand in hand. But I'm curious, so you were counseled by Gothard specifically? Okay. And yes. How did that end up happening? Because you've got so many people going through the course. Was that something he did pretty much nonstop one-on-one counseling or was it something that like, how did you end up in some like Gothard's office when, you know, you've got, he's a pretty large figure within that world. There would be annual ATI conferences that everyone would go to. There was four or five every year throughout the summer and they'd all be spread throughout the country. And Bill as many people know, he has a type. He uh, is very drawn to young girls of a specific look. And it's not all just physical either. He is very good at picking up, I would say, insecurities, any kind of abuse that may be happening within the home, anything like that. He's very good at picking that up. And so <clears throat> I was spotted the first time I went to an ATI conference, I was 13. He was 76 years old. And we happened to be walking opposite ways in a hallway and he stopped me. And that was the very first interaction. And he was like instantly drawn to me and was saying how you have a beautiful smile and you have such a bright countenance. And I want you to work for my ministry. I was 13. And he asked me as soon as I turned 14, because there was an age limit for the specific type of ministry he wanted me to go into. It was called the Great Expeditions Team. And it was a team that went to Russia and Mexico and Peru and did a lot of international ministry. A central part of the Great Expeditions program is an intensive and practical training curriculum to prepare them for effective service the team received instruction in conversational Spanish, counseling, youth and family ministry, and spiritual development. Speaking in front of people isn't a great strength of mine. Mr. Gothard is helping all of us to develop a testimony that has four clear points so that we can communicate a message and something that we learned. He asked as soon as I turned 14 to quit school and come up to headquarters full time and wow. join the Great Expeditions Group. You don't need school. This is school for you. And uh, ministry is school. And he continued for the next, every single year that I would attend the ATI conference, he would spot me out of a crowd of hundreds of teenagers. And he would zero in on me. He'd come up to me in between sessions and he would instantly compliment my physical appearance and say things like, God has put a special love in my heart for you. And I, you are an energy giver to me and you, you need to join me in ministry and God wants us to work together and, and all this stuff. And eventually, and, and I continue to hold off going to headquarters primarily because of my health. I was still so sick. I really wasn't in a stable position to go off and work in a ministry, leave the care of my mother, who was my full-time caretaker. And, but when I was eight, when I was 19, I did end up going to headquarters for a couple of weeks. My mother did come with me. Again, it was like 
at another conference. This time it was up in Indianapolis and which is just a few hours from headquarters. And he again, just implored that I needed, this was God's will. I needed to come and work up at headquarters. And as over the course of those six years, he had learned more of my story about the abuse from my father and my home environment. He knew about my Crohn's disease. So a lot of what he was saying centered around, you need to come to headquarters because that's the only way you're going to get well. You need to get out of the stress of your home and you need to come because you'll be cured of Crohn's if you come and live up here and get out from the stress of your home, get away from your dad. And he wanted to take on the father role for me and tell me I can, I'm, I'll be your new father figure, whatever. And my mother and I, when I was 19, we did finally agree that I would come up to headquarters for just a couple of weeks for counseling. We still told him we were not interested in coming up long-term, but we would come up together and he could counsel my dad over the phone and uh, he would do some one-on-one counseling with me. So that's the majority of the counseling that I experienced. There certainly was not much counseling because those that know my story more in depth, they know that as soon as we arrived at headquarters, everything changed as far as his attitude towards us. And he made it very clear he was not going to help my family unless my mother went home. And I made a long-term commitment to stay at headquarters by myself. And you don't really have contact with your family. You don't have, you're not allowed to have a cell phone. Any phone calls that you make back home with your family have to be supervised by Bill in his office. He told me that I need to go, like my medication for Crohn's was bad for me and I need to go off of it. So I knew if my mother went home, I would have no access to medication. I didn't have a driver's license. So I would have no way I would be completely dependent on headquarters staff. And I just knew that (laughs) it was a death sentence for me. So eventually we left headquarters and it did not end pretty. He was very upset that we left tried to threaten us, tried to gaslight us and convince us to stay at headquarters. And we weren't going to do it. We went back home. So my one-on-one involvement with Gothard really only lasted just those 10 days at the headquarters. And and did, aside from obviously the medical concern, were there any red flags that like your mom, because it sounds like both of you as in it as you were, still were identifying things that made you uncomfortable, which Correct. is correct. And know. I would say that was just, thank God for my mother, right? That while we really did believe in a lot of the teaching, my mother still always kept somewhat of a level head, I mm-hmm. would say to where she was not about ready to just com- give complete control over to him, over her daughter. And she, and he said, he's like, oh my goodness, you're the most stubborn woman I've ever met in my life. (laughs) He said it was such contempt toward her. So I am so thankful that she had a level head and she still made decisions that were best for her family. She was not by any means under his control, which was rare again for an ETI family. And I just, I'm so thankful that I was spared. Yeah, thank God for stubborn parents. (laughs) Absolutely. She was always very intent on doing what was best for me, what was best for us and for my health. And she was not about ready to get pushed around by somebody even that was as perfect and holy as Bill Gothard. (laughs) So after leaving there, obviously pretty explosive end to try to leave. Did that knock the two of you 
out of the movement or was it something you still stayed in and practiced for a, a long time afterward? What, is that what kickstarted that journey out or was that just a small piece of the puzzle and that trip out? I would say our high opinion of Bill had been tainted a bit just based on our personal interactions with him. We still believed the teachings in general, for the most part, I was 19 at that point. So I had graduated from homeschool. So we weren't doing the wisdom booklets every morning. We never went back to another ETI conference Mm. again. So I guess you could say we ended up formally stepping out, but it, it was really more to do with my age and finishing up homeschooling rather than actually our experience at headquarters. However, six months after I left headquarters and I was in, I was at headquarters in August of 2011, the recovering grace website for those that are familiar with it was started in June of 2011. Mm. So by August, there had already been several articles. The sexual abuse allegations had not come out yet. It was just focusing in on the faulty teachings and also a lot of the like physical abuse that happened within families that practice corporal punishment or right. stories from the training centers, that kind of stuff was coming out. And, but I was not aware of recovering grace when I was at headquarters, I became aware of it six months later and completely by coincidence, completely by God, whatever you want to call it. I had heard that there was a fire down at one of the training centers. And so I Googled information about it to see what happened, if everyone was okay. And I come across your coming grace website. And I had no idea what this website was. And I click on the homepage and the top article was released just a few days before. And it was by an anonymous woman going by the pseudonym of Lizzie. And she was explaining her interactions with Bill and how she believed them to fall under the category of sexual harassment. Mm. And that was really my like first foray into something's wrong with ATI. It was very slow climb out of it for sure. Was your initial, when you first saw that, did you say, oh, that's not, I can't be right. Or, or was it something where you were already at a point where you're like, okay, maybe this does track with what I experienced and saw. I felt two emotions. First of all, I sorry, I'm trying to put myself back into those shoes. I remember just being very stunned at what she was explaining and not quite able to comprehend because I was not taught about sexual abuse was not really taught about sexual harassment. The only kind of sexual abuse I was aware of was rape and like in the violent sense of a woman jogging in the park and gets attacked by somebody she doesn't know. That was my only concept of sexual abuse. Which is the rarest form of sexual abuse. Right. Right. Exactly. So I was not aware of that happening by somebody. I wasn't aware of grooming. I wasn't aware of the various stages of what can happen. And that's going on in my brain of like, really, that's considered sexual harassment. That doesn't make sense because that's all new to me. But really, the primary emotion I felt was betrayal because Bill had a way 
of making his girls feel like they were the only one, that you were the most important special thing in the world to him, that God had placed a special love in his heart for you and that was exclusive toward you, that you had something innately special and unique about you that nobody else had. And he saw that. And there was that exclusivity that he saw in you. And all of that included pet names and different things he would say about you and ways he would flatter you and offers he would make for all these great things. And reading the Recovering Grace articles for the first time, I realized I wasn't the only one. And I would say it might be a similar feeling to a way a woman might feel that's maybe dating a guy and he's like completely showering her with affection and you think he's head over heels for you and he has all these pet names. And then you find out later that he's dating three other women. He, he calls those other women all the same pet names. And that kind of, of feeling of betrayal kind of felt like I had been emotionally cheated on. Hmm. Wow. So a slow process out of that, was it just article after article that started coming out? Because it seems like it's just keep building momentum and keeps growing and this, the amount of stories keep coming in. So like, at what point was it critical mass? Okay. This was way off. Like right. the teaching itself, like obviously respect for him dwindling rapidly as you're seeing mm-hmm. more and more of these stories, but it's hard to shake some of those teachings. Like even now, and it's hard to explain it, but even now, sometimes I'll be listening to, because I listen to a lot of, I listen to more IP preaching now than probably ever did when I was in it. <laughs> Right. Sometimes you listen to it. And if you go into autopilot, you start going, oh, do they have a point there? Like, oh, that mm-hmm. sounds like mm-hmm. some of it does when you start compounding it on top of each other, you're like, okay, the teaching starting to make sense here. And then your logic kicks in. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But how long did it take for you to go from, okay, something's wrong with Bill to something's wrong with Bill's teaching? And mm-hmm. when did you first kind of voice that to anybody? I had several pivotal moments that have occurred since 2012 when I first read the first Recovering Grace article. First of all, when I read that first article, I did bring the information to my mother and I'm like, this is how Bill treated me. Like Mm. when you weren't around, even sometimes when she was around, but when you weren't around, this is what he was doing. And she immediately, and this is, I don't fault her for this one at all, but she was immediately like, oh. Emily, that that can't be. He would never act inappropriate toward a young lady. He's just being grandfatherly. These people don't understand. There's just absolutely no way he would be sexually inappropriate with any girl. And so I believed that as well for a time. I went ahead very impulsively and wrote out some comments under that article and shared a little bit of my own experience with Bill. Just from a very factual standpoint, because I still didn't believe it was sexual harassment myself. And I did receive a call from Bill just a couple days later. He had read my comments and I would say that's when all hell broke loose. He berated me on the phone for at least an hour. He said that I was a vicious, malicious liar and that I was telling a half truth and trying to come up with a story and putting labels on it to attempt to destroy the entire ministry and that the damage was getting worse by the hour within a matter of weeks, IBLP would be sunk 
all of the staff at headquarters would lose their jobs. That was going to be my fault. So he like proposed this doomsday scenario based off of my comments. And he's, you have got to retract these instantly. And I'm really proud of myself because on one hand, he, I did totally fall for the manipulation and I started crying profusely and begging for his mercy and forgiveness and saying, I'm so sorry. I can't, I, I never ever meant to cause any kind of harm. And but on the other hand, I really stood up for myself and that I didn't want to delete my comments mm-hmm. right away. Initially I suggest I'll delete them for sure, but I wouldn't agree that I had lied or that I had even told a half truth. I didn't fall for that. I just made it be, or I, I believe myself that like, well, what I said was truthful. I didn't see anything false. My comments are hundred percent truthful. It just had a consequence that I wasn't intending. And I was so sorry for that consequence. Anyway, he, after berating me on the phone for quite a while, me apologizing, he completely did this 180 switch and started sweet talking me in the way he typically did and said how much he loved me and how everything was going to be okay. As long as I just removed my comments. And at first I'm like, fine, yes, we'll do that. We'll do that. And we reached out. We, my mother and I reached out to recovering grace, asked them to remove the comments. Thankfully, because you can't remove them yourself. An admin had to remove them. Thankfully, we have recovering grace team member, asked to have a phone call with us. Mm -hmm. And he talked to us for a couple of hours and began to give some history of the darker side of IBLP. I would say his phone call didn't make that much of an impact because we didn't still believe that there really was a darker side to IBLP, but he did convince us to hold off on deleting the comments. And instead we offered Bill to do a retract or not retraction, AM to alter the comments and include some details that he was upset that I left out, not on purpose, but just because I wasn't writing a novel in the comment section, you know, right. <laughs> but he's like, out this, you left out that. It's okay. Add those details back in to make you look better. Um, and long story short, he harassed me over the phone for three long weeks, calling my house several times a day, leaving messages, insisting, demanding that I remove my comments. And I continue to say, I didn't lie. I didn't lie. Nothing's wrong with my comments. But eventually the phone harassment really wore down my nerves. And I reached out to Recovering Grace and I just said, please, I think it's wrong that I remove my comments, but I cannot handle the phone harassment anymore. Please just remove them. And they respected my wishes. I know it was hard for them, but they did. And for several months, I really just tried to bury the whole situation I tried to forget about it and it was difficult because Bill reached out to me several other times asking for more formal written statements of retraction, saying that me renewing my comments wasn't enough. Oddly enough, he actually reached out to me two other times, mm-hmm. pretending that the whole situation hadn't happened at all. And he's, oh, Emily, I thought of you the other day. We have a brand new ministry starting up here at headquarters and I want you to run the head of it. Like, did we not forget everything that just happened with between us in the last year? It was very strange. But anyway, in t- I, I did continue to read the Recovering Grace articles off and on. And in 2014, a new article was released by a woman 
who detailed a story of Bill molesting her. Mm. And that was a very crucial moment for me. That was a moment I realized I can't explain this away by grandfatherly affection. This has, if this is true, this has to be a sexual predator. So that was a big turning point for me. Another big turning point was when I officially joined the lawsuit in 2015. At that point, I understood the legal definition of Bill's actions, but I still didn't think anything was wrong with that, with the fundamentalist teaching. And that didn't start until soon after I joined the lawsuit when I started professional counseling. Mm -hmm. And so it was really professional counseling in like 2016, 2017, et cetera, that I finally started to understand that this is not just about Bill and his personal interactions with me. Like the entire movement is broken and dangerous and it's been a journey ever since of learning just how corrupted the teaching is and learning what the truth is. So the, the, I know the lawsuit, it was going up till 2018. Funny, like, actually, by the time the last appeals like finally went through, everything didn't wrap up until last summer of 2020. And IBLP is still here. What? It's a long process and a lot of red flags, a lot of people coming forward. Is there anything further that can be done as far as like IBLP, Bill Gothard, or is it something where this is closed for now? What's I would say if you ask the victims of ATI and the students that they want more to be done. Yeah. And I would say there are still legal avenues that could possibly be pursued don't necessarily want to go in depth on what all of those are, but I would say there are still things that could be done to hold abusers within the system accountable for Mm -hmm. sure. And I am still upset that IBLP has put on this facade that they have separated themselves from Bill, but they really haven't. He's, he's on Bill's the website. Maybe, he's on it. the website. Yes. All the books, all the wisdom books, like everything was written by Bill and by Steve, his brother. And even though Bill isn't the president, it's still 100% Bill's organization as far as like the teaching and everything. And they still have the basic seminar like on their website where you can watch it. So they have it separated from Bill at all. And I've heard families that are still within ATI, they try to excuse it. And they're like, oh, they're different now. And we're not really a part of, we don't associate with Bill Gothard anymore. It's not true. It's not true. It's just facade. Yes, there have been some, I would say modernization of AT, or of, of IBLP where they've loosened some of this, the strict dress code at the conferences and that sort of stuff. They're like loosening some of the legalistic rules, but at the heart, yeah. it's still the same. And I don't think it's redeemable. I think it needs to shut down. And I think all the books need to go out of publication. And I think it needs to go completely away. Yeah, It's what happens, I think, with a lot of these ministries is what gets changed. And this is an issue I noticed with the independent Baptist churches at large. Like I know we're focused on Gothard, but like I noticed a lot of churches 
that people would say they're different or they're modernized or they're whatever word you want to say. And you'd get into it and go, okay, the music's better. It it doesn't sound like it's from the 1800s or they can go to theaters or they can watch a movie that's not G or whatever. But at the core, the teaching and philosophy was the same and them allowing women to wear pants, (laughs) like it, that doesn't prevent sexual assault or physical abuse or immense corporal punishment that's extremely harmful to children in the movement or the ideology of making women this very low class within that world. Like none of that solved by contemporizing it, if that's even a word. Mm -hmm. And I see so many churches that do that. And I see people, I have a very close friend who has cycled through six IFB churches now And each one has ended the same way with being yelled at, screamed at, and then go to the next one. Mm -hmm. And it's always, they're different. They're And it's no, their music is different, but they're just putting a fresh coat of paint on the same old stuff. hundred percent. And so I think, yeah, exactly. Like legally, like any of these cases, it's going to be frustrating and there's going to be a ton of time and the justice system doesn't feel like the justice system in many of these cases. And Gothard has religious freedom on his side, which unfortunately in our country gives you a lot of leeway to do a lot of abusive things. But yeah, for the victims, I think it's important to do exactly what you're doing, which is exposing it, writing about it. Like you're, you sharing some of this curriculum and I know it's not easy. Like I know it's not easy to put yourself back in that world every week and write out an article. Or I told you even scheduling this interview, there's times I step away from my inbox for a little bit because it's pretty intense seeing these stories, It is, but you have to talk about it. If it's not going to happen within a courtroom, which you and I both know, like sometimes it doesn't happen. Like you have to still talk about the philosophies that are happening. You have to still expose it for people that are in it, for people mm-hmm. that are coming out. I didn't expect through this show, how many people who are hurt and just felt like they were the only person that had experienced this and not realizing there's literally thousands of people who are just drifting around going, what do we do now? Like we've spent 22, 23, 24, 25, 30 years only knowing this. Is there anyone else that feels like they're outside of this bubble, but have nowhere right. else to go? And so right. I do, I'm very curious to see, like there's still a tension that keeps popping up onto Gothard and IBLP. And I'm curious to see if something happens or if some, something budges. But in the meantime, like I'm extremely thankful for stuff like your blog, for Recovering Grace, for all these sites that have de- devoted so much time to this subject, because it's important. And we have to, like you said, for the victims involved, you have to hope there's some kind of justice or some kind of at least awareness and admission that something happened. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm curious, just as we come to a close, I'm curious, you've got your blog, you're writing, you don't solely just write about this topic. Like you're writing about Mm -hmm. really you're doing what I did when I left the movement initially is I started blogging and just almost felt like a journal that I just shared where I'm working through. Here's what I'm figuring out. But if you could see something happen over the next year or two, as a result of people reading your blog, or as you a result of your writing being out there, what would you hope to see happen? Or what do you want people to take away as they read through your story and, and follow mm-hmm. your journey? I would say the most rewarding thing about my current work is getting to work one-on-one mm-hmm. with other survivors And as my blog has gotten more attention, especially in the last month, few months, Mm -hmm. the messages have started pouring in and every single day 
I am getting multiple messages through either Facebook Messenger or for email or whatnot. And the most heartbreaking stories from survivors, many of them women, for sure. I do talk about how a lot of the teachings uh, in the fundamentalist movement are very damaging for women and the effects that it can have on marriage. But I don't want to hone in specifically on marriage because there are other advocates that have walked through that as their own personal story. I have not. I am married, but I've only been married for a year and I'm married to an amazing, loving, cherishing guy. And so I haven't personally walked through an abusive marriage other than viewing as a child from my parents' marriage. But, and so I tend to like point to other advocates that specialize in that advocacy work in particular, but still I get messages all the time Mm -hmm. from women that are in trap trapped within abusive marriages, or they have just now escaped and they need help on where to go and what to learn. And women coming to me and saying, I'm in abusive marriage. I'm just now realizing this and I'm having the Bible used against me as a weapon. Help me decode some of these verses. So I would say that's the most rewarding thing is being able to work with survivors one-on-one, try to point them to sources that I know will be helpful for them on their journey. So I would say, I just want that to be able to increase. I want my, my, my impact one-on-one with survivors. I want to actually make a difference in someone's life for sure. It's also really daunting too, because I still have so much to learn myself yeah. and I do not have all the answers, nor do I want to pretend that I do. And, right. and it's really daunting. Sometimes I, I get these women that come to me in the most desperate situations and, oh, this feels over my head. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I'm thankful for the advocate community that we really all seem to work together in this and we really can help point each other to the best help for specific situations. But anyway, I think that was a long answer to your No, it's it's how I feel is like, it's very much, I've, I I don't pretend to be an expert either. And I try to bring on people who are as whenever I can, because it, it helps. But the one thing that I can do is one, have the platform so I can bring those experts on. And then two, like, I think just people the most common message I get all the time is, oh, I thought I was the only one who experienced blank. And every time I have a guest on, I know I will with yours, I'll have four or five people reach out and say, oh, that's exactly what I went through. And it's a bittersweet thing about the show is that every episode resonates with a different group of people, Mm -hmm. but all within the same community. Like it's, there's things that resonate with each story with everybody broadly. And then there's four or five people that I, I almost every episode, I get the message. I thought I was the only one who experienced blank. And it's something mm-hmm. messi- mentioned on that episode. Right. And so baseline, I think the most important thing about what you're doing and what, what I'm doing is it just opens the conversation and says, Hey, it's okay to say that happened. Yeah. And that's what happened in your stories. You saw someone share their story and you were like, Oh, that's what happened with me. And right. you identify some of those negative things, even though at the time you didn't even realize it, like at the time. It just seems like, oh, this kind of odd experience or this thing that, you know, oh, it was unfortunate, it ended that way, but you were able to start seeing, oh, this goes way deeper than what I thought. Yeah, that's amazing. I answered the question I always end on, which is, do you think there's hope for reform? And I, I guess I'll just make it a little bit broader than just Gothard's world. But as you look at, I'm sure you have people reaching out to you from all over the spectrum of kind of the independent Baptist world. Do you think there's any 
work that can be done? Or do you think there's any change that can be done within the movement? Or do you think it's something where it's just, you have to get people out of it and there has to be something new as opposed to an approach to it? I don't think there's much reform that can happen within the movement because at its core, its core teachings, its core is flawed. And in order to center around what they need to center, which is the gospel and Jesus, they would no longer be the IFB movement. Right. Exactly. Um, And if I could say something to survivors that are still stuck in it, it would be to ask them to consider that the core of IBF teaching or IFB teaching is legalism and it's bondage. And there is freedom outside of it. And that freedom is found in the gospel. And freedom is really terrifying when your place of bondage appears so much more secure because yeah. it's, it's familiar. It's all- and stepping into the unknown, into freedom may be the most terrifying thing you've ever done. Hmm. But I promise you, even the worst day in freedom, the hardest day in freedom is better than the best day in bondage. Wow. I'm not going to try to say anything beyond that because I think that's a perfect spot to to close, but I I really do appreciate you sharing that. And I think that's, it is, it's incredibly scary stepping out, but there's nothing better than being in freedom. Like that's, yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much for for joining me. I'm going to include links to everything that we mentioned in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, every book we mentioned, every article, I'm going to try to include here in the show notes. So you can spend time going down the rabbit hole, following some of these stories, but uh, thank you so much for for joining me and for talking through this. I'm glad we finally made this happen. And I yes, hope it's not the definitely. last time that we chat. So absolutely. I've enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure talking with you and can't wait to do this again. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.